Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Our legal roundtable panel has lots to talk about today, from the Kavanaugh hearing and its fallout to a legal maneuver to dodge liability in that Branson duck boat tragedy. And there's plenty in between, too. Joining me in studio are attorneys Bill Freivogel. He teaches journalism at SIU in Carbondale. Mark Smith is associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. Also joining us is Marsha McCormick. She teaches law at the St. Louis University School of Law. Thank you all so much for being with us. Good to have you. Hi. Well, I'd like to ask each of you, as attorneys, for your takeaway from the Kavanaugh hearing of just a couple of weeks ago. Most unusual in many ways. Mark, I'll start with you. Well, it was um, not what you would like to see in a, um, a hearing, I think. The, um, both the, you know, the, the, the inquiry with the, that was made is not becoming to the court. And then I think, you know, his um, attack and, and suggestion that this was all politically motivated. You know, the Supreme Court is an anti-democratic institution. Um, I think uh, it needs to have a strong reputation. I don't know that that helped it. And I think you're seeing folks like Roberts try and rehabilitate the court's uh, reputation. But I don't think it, it, it was a good moment for the court. Bill? I, I agree. I thought it was really disconcerting um, just from beginning to end, uh, the way in which it was disrupted. You know, the testimony was disrupted in the beginning by protesters in the audience. I might have agreed with the protesters, but uh, they don't get to uh, disrupt the, the hearing when Senator Durbin from Illinois said that was their First Amendment right. He was wrong. Mm-hmm. It isn't. Um, I mean, protesters have been doing this for a long time. I remember this happening when Souter was the nominee, which was a long time ago. Um, but protesters were removed right away, and it didn't, like, totally disrupt the hearing. They, uh, this was a mess. And, um, and, and then, of course, I was very much reminded uh, of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill situation. It was exactly the same thing played out first week. Uh, first, the, the hearings took up the legal philosophy of the of the nominee, and then there were these uh, 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 sexually related allegations afterwards, um, where um, in both cases the uh, the women who came forward, I you know I thought were were not well treated in the end. Anita Hill, very blatantly so. Uh, they went. They went out of their way. The, 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 the committee seemed at first to go out of their way to, to give to respect Dr. Ford, but you know then you have the president saying mocking her and saying you know how, how we got to worry about uh, about the falsely accused men, um, and you know I, I really did think that by the end 
of the second hearing after Kavanaugh had, um, you know, made, made this uh, totally partisan, uh, intemperate uh, defense that he no longer was a person who should be uh, put on the Supreme Court. Um, so I, I was disappointed by the whole thing. Marcia, how about you? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a whole lot to add, actually, to those observations. Um, it's a little, I think, the um, especially the comparison to the Hill-Thomas hearings, the way that the hearing was structured not to actually find out. Um, so the allegations about at least knowing about sexual m- misconduct happened well before any of the um, judicial temperament part of the hearing um, because uh, Kavanaugh had uh, worked with uh, Form, now former Judge Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit. Um, and so a lot of, I don't know, sort of troubling information was out there on the radar, but was just not necessarily being dealt with by the uh, Judiciary Committee. Um, and so uh, I do think that, the uh, I don't want to say that, I, a lot of people think that the court is politicized anyway. Um, and this certainly just sort of reinforced that belief. You mentioned temperament, and I wanted to get to that because it seemed to me that uh, this was transformed in in a heartbeat from a a hearing basically dealing with the accusation of a sexual assault and became a discussion more more so of judicial temperament. Mm -hmm. The other thing was kind of swept aside at the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of that has to do with just sort of the tenor right now about how people are supposed to react and act in public and how men in particular, I think, um, are supposed to act um, to be perceived as strong. Um, And there's some, uh, there have been some things said that uh, Kavanaugh was coached to react that way, that he had to come out guns blazing, so to speak. Otherwise, he would be viewed as weak. Um, And it's just a, I don't know, sort of a this is probably the wrong cliche, but a winner-take-all sort of approach to everything um, that's completely politicized and over-the-top all the time. Bill, I was uh, struck by the fact that former Justice uh, John Paul Stevens came out, as he did, and basically said that uh, on the basis of this temperament issue, uh, he was not qualified to serve on the court, uh, Kavanaugh, that is. Yeah, Justice Stevens had initially supported Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm. and uh, I believe he had written a book in which he even had um, uh, praised one of Kavanaugh's uh, opinions, um, and he changed his mind after hearing, you know, the, the... uh, Kavanaugh's last uh, de- uh, angry uh, defense, and and thought that there would be so many cases where he really couldn't be, you know, put himself forward as a uh, as an unbiased uh, justice that that he really shouldn't be uh, on on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, as Marcia says, th- there is a long history of sort of men appearing t- uh, before Congress and angry men and taking on Congress. And uh, try, you know, ending up triumphant uh, from Clarence Thomas and um, you know high tech lynching to Oliver North during Iran Contra. There's a Jimmy Stewart in, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the fictional accounts, mm-hmm. and Kavanaugh was you know did it. But I, I just thought when he went to the whole extent of saying you know with some sort of Clinton conspiracy, you know himself taking on the Trumpian uh, approach of making stuff up. The, the, uh, in a very highly partisan way, that that was just way beyond mm-hmm. what a person should, uh, who was expected to be on the Supreme Court, should do. Right, and and 
he was, uh, Stevens was saying, you know, th- this points out potential bias that mm-hmm. Kavanaugh would have yeah. in court cases, and the Supreme mm-hmm. Court decides to recuse themselves solely. They make that decision individually. Mm-hmm. So um, the other thing that kind of bugged me about the hearing, it wasn't just Kavanaugh. It was the senators. I mean, when we have a society that's so politically divided, um, you would love to see, and everyone's watching these hearings, mm-hmm. you would love to see some some good behavior kind of modeled. This is how you disagree on mm-hmm. political issues. This is how you have a conversation instead of everyone getting red-faced and yelling. No. Um, that's We've had enough of that. The b- b- bottom line was that it turned out to be totally political anyway. The right. vote was a, a long political It was political a done lines. deal, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and the chief justice came out later, and I, I interpreted it as something of uh, an effort at damage control because mm-hmm. he came out and basically reaffirmed the uh, political independence of the court. Did you see it that way, Marshall? Um, I, certainly, I think, uh, because well, at least the news articles are treating it as damage control as well because they're careful to um, note that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor have also publicly said um, important things about the, the court needing to be independent um, so that uh, altogether this looks like a very united front by justices on different sides of the political spectrum mm-hmm. um, to reaffirm their independence. Right. Final thoughts on well, this? Well, I mean, I think Chief Justice Roberts uh, is, is especially concerned about the legitimacy right. of the court going forward. And the legitimacy of the court uh, is, is called into question by these kinds of kinds of events. So you can see that he would want to do everything he can so that the court is seen as independent and, and not uh, partisan. And, you know, I think um, – I don't want to – I hate to make predictions, but I think that that – may play into the way he will end up actually voting and participating in some of the really tough questions that may come forward about whether or not to overturn Roe versus Wade or go back on same-sex marriage or any of these sort of 5-4 issues um, uh, before the court, that even though he might feel one way, he won't want the Supreme Court to be throwing out precedent after precedent after precedent that's on what seems like just a political uh, vote. It's going to take a long time for people to forget that hearing as they, as the court session uh, moves on and decisions are rendered over the course of the next months. No question about that. Uh, one other thing before we take a break that I wanted to get to, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, it's the Stormy Daniels situation. Uh, she gets so much publicity, but Donald Trump, Marsha, won, won one here with the, mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, case against her, the, the, uh, the uh, defamation of character suit. Right, um, and it's this is a this is an inter- super interesting if you're a lawyer, maybe slightly less interesting in the details if you're not a lawyer. If but it involves Stormy, <laughs> most people are interested. Yeah, so she she sued him over a tweet, right? And but uh, and Texas law applied, but the president's defense was something called an anti-slap statute that basically says that when uh, defamation suits are used to defeat. Uh, public commentary on an issue, they can be dismissed and you can get attorney's fees. And he won using that anti-slap statute, which is really unusual because usually it's used by the people who don't have any power against the people in power. So, um, uh, and it doesn't affect anything about the non-disclosure agreement. So it's certainly interesting and, uh, and a win, but I'm not sure it gets 
him where he wants to be. Yeah, she she has to pay his legal fees, and right. uh, that's it. And it's going to be appealed, Michael Avenatti bill, uh, who's not shy about coming <laughs> forward on on anything. It seems uh, is going to appeal. Yeah, I, I mean there are a lot of uh, there's a number of ironic things about this uh, in that you know Trump has been saying uh, it's too hard for a person like Trump to win a defamation case uh, because uh, and and that Congress should pass some laws making it easier. Well, he won because yeah. of New York Times versus mm-hmm. Sullivan and the requirement mm-hmm. that there be actual malice uh, proven. Uh, so, you know, the very part of the libel law he wants to get rid of uh, and, and probably can't is why he won. Um, I, I have a friend, Mark Sableman, at, at Thompson Coburn, uh, who wrote an interesting little blog post about this case. And he was pointing out that before, uh, before you had the sort of wild, uh, opinionated claims that you have on the Internet every day in, in billions of, uh, of uh, bytes and uh, before you had this uh, sort of wild allegations being made, he didn't use the term wild, I'm using wild, uh, by a president of the United States like Trump, um, that, that, that probably this would have seemed like a, the kind of defamation case that a person like Stormy Daniels could win. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court said that when, when somebody expresses an opinion that is based upon facts, that uh, whether facts are true or not is, are, are relevant. And you, so you can sue a person for an opinion. So she could sue Donald Trump for saying it was a big con job to say uh, that she was threatened by a person in a Las Vegas parking lot uh, if she were to disclose her relationship with Trump. Um, so, you know, before Trump, before the Internet, uh, for Trump to say that wasn't true, that could be proven or disproven more or less mm-hmm. and could be the basis of mm-hmm. a defamation suit. But things have gotten so crazy that that now uh, this is considered to be rhetorical hyperbole. Mm-hmm. And virtually everything, you know, is suddenly becoming rhetorical mm-hmm. hyperbole. So how does a democracy figure out if everything's rhetorical hyperbole and can say anything you want, how do you get to actually truth versus yeah. not truth? Yeah. Well, we have to take a break. Mark, do you have anything to add? I no, just I think the most important thing we'll continue to hear from Stormy and Michael Daniel. Yeah, this is not the end of um, her lawsuit. Okay, yeah. let's take that break now. We'll do that, come back, and continue our conversation with our legal roundtable panelists. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. We've got a free event coming up here at St. Louis Public Radio this Wednesday. Join us at 6.30 that evening for our Missouri Ballot Issues Forum. I'll be talking with proponents and opponents of four major issues before Missouri voters this fall. Proposition D, Amendment 1, Prop B, plus the three competing measures that would legalize medical marijuana in the state. For details and to register for the free event beginning promptly at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, go to stlpublicradio.org slash ballot. Now back to our legal roundtable panelists, Marcia McCormick of St. Louis University School of Law, Mark Smith, Washington University, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Okay, we've been reading today and over the weekend that the Trump administration is considering and is very likely to change the legal definition of transgender to have it determined solely, or gendered, determined solely by genitalia at birth. Marsha, this is in your wheelhouse, isn't it? Uh, what, what's to be gained by doing this for the administration? Well, 
the um, there are a couple or there are a number of things that are to be gained. First, what's interesting is that the regulations that are uh, supposed to be changed actually affect very, very, very few cases, very little um, when it comes to the federal government's enforcement of the prohibition of sex discrimination. Um, the regulations are supposed to be issued by the um, Office of Civil Rights of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, which really only governs educational programs, or at least the Title IX protection, which is the anti-sex discrimination protection, um, only covers educational institutions that receive funding from HHS. Um, Title IX is mostly actually enforced by the Department of Education, which is not yet issuing these kinds of regulations. Um, and the employment laws that prohibit sex discrimination are uh, enforced by the EEOC, um, which is yet a third agency. Um, and so, uh, and actually the Department of Labor as well, um, which is a fourth agency. So um, the this particular change is not going to affect very much, except that it does telescope what the um, administration is likely to do with the Department of Education's regulations, um, at least. It is unlikely that, well, and this is a position or a similar position that the Department of Justice has taken in litigation as well. Um, the challenge for the administration is that the courts have pretty uniformly said that gender identity, um, being transgender, um, is sex um, for purposes of all of these statutes that prohibit mm -hmm. sex discrimination. Um, so the administration can say this in their regulations, and maybe courts will give some deference to it. But since the vast majority of decisions in this area have said that um, that gender identity is sex, um, it's unlikely to have a real effect um, in terms of, uh, uh, I don't know, in terms of policies once they get challenged, at least in litigation. So it's more to make a political point, perhaps, than anything else? <laughs> perhaps, or to try to set the stage for litigation that will reverse those earlier cases. But it's going to be hard to do that because it's going to require um, courts sitting on bunk, for example, um, and a whole big complicated process. Mm -hmm. Any thought, Bill? Well, but I guess the uh, U.S. Supreme Court hasn't ruled on, on this issue. So so if they are able to set up those uh, legal challenges you're talking about, they yeah. could get a favorable decision before the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, if they can get there. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll move along unless we have anything else to add. I'd like to move to that uh, the duck boat story that I mentioned early on, that uh, horrible incident in Branson, mm -hmm. uh, I guess it was in July, 17 people were killed, and the families of, uh, of those victims are suing. But now the companies involved uh, with the uh, duck boat uh, uh, company uh, are um, citing an 1851 law to try to work around this. Mark, um, what is that all about? What's the law, and how could it help the companies? Yeah. So the law uh, limits damages that you have on when a, um, a maritime vessel is, is totaled like this. Um, these types of situations are, are not unusual. They're completely unusual. Sometimes you'll have a statute that uh, provides a sole exclusive remedy um, so that pro um, blocks other things. I mean, I think it's important to note that this is happening while negotiations are going on. For settlement. Um, so for settlement, right. So this may just be <clears throat> a move um, – as part of uh, keeping their options open and trying to put some more pressure on the on the plaintiffs to settle. Um, yeah. 
Bill, my impression is that uh, that part of this law that they're citing was the fact that the boat carried no freight, carried people, of course, but no freight, and that the boat was a total loss, therefore they're off the hook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be, I, I think that's right, it would be, you know, a terrible miscarriage of justice if, if uh, you know, a law from the middle of the 19th century were to uh, get in the way of these um, people being able to collect for what seems to have been very clear uh, negligence on the part of the, mm -hmm. the, the operator of the boat. Mm -hmm. Hey, Marcia, any thoughts from you? Shall we, shall not, we move on? Not really. I think it's covered well. <laughs> uh, okay. Now let's uh, turn to Missouri voter ID. And, and uh, Bill, I'll, I'll turn to you for, for this. The status of the uh, Missouri voter ID law is a, a, a little bit in limbo right now. It's being kicked around. It has to do with the alternative. If no photo ID is produced uh, at the ballot place, uh, those who don't have the ID would be required to sign an affidavit that they're qualified to vote. Um, well, the judge says voters don't have to show that affidavit, apparently. What does all this mean for Election Day in 10 days or whatever it is? Well, as you say, it is confusing. I mean, I think the judge's ruling, Judge Callahan, uh, was, uh, I mean, it was very, I thought it was an excellent ruling. He, did, he upheld most of the law, um, you know, which... Uh, which I think is sort of too, too bad, but it's probably legally, legally correct. I mean, I think these voter ID laws are just a way to try to hold down voting by people Republicans don't want voting. At least it's not Georgia. <laughs> At least it's not <laughs> Georgia, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but judge, I, I thought that Judge Callahan was made a, did, you know, looked at this very carefully, and he pointed out that the affidavit that uh, a person has to sign if they have, say, gotten to vote based on a utility bill or some other non-photo uh, ID identification that the affidavit they have to sign is actually requires them to under penalty of uh, uh, of, perjure, uh, of of being prosecuted to uh, to assert something that's false uh, you know that that they have not presented an ID that enables them to vote. Well, the utility bill is an ID that enables mm -hmm. them to vote. So it was like a self-contradictory affidavit that required them to swear under penalty of being prosecuted to something that was false. And so um, the, um, the, the, the judge said that, that they, couldn't ha they could not require signing that, uh, that, that um, statement. And, you know, of course, it's, it's, the, it's the signing of that statement that makes, that, that can cause people when they see they could be prosecuted for mm -hmm. something to be afraid to use, say, the utility bill as the basis for them uh, to be able to vote. So I guess the uh, uh, Ashcroft, uh, the Secretary of State, and Hawley, the Attorney General, are, are trying to get a, uh, a stay uh, so that because they say they've already trained uh, the, the election workers to require that uh, affidavit. But so far, they haven't filed anything, I don't think. I couldn't find it. And they so said they were going to. They were going to, and the ruling came out on the 6th. Yeah, We've got the election coming up. So you kind of wonder, and, and I know there was the Democrats just, some of the Dem uh, elected officials said, hey, don't appeal this. That was like a few days ago. So you kind of wonder, are, th are they going to do this or are they not? And what's, what's taking so long? Yeah, I, I actually think that the 
even more interesting part of the the judge's order relates to the advertising on the voter ID, um, the new voter ID requirement. So the judge also said that the advertising connected with it misled the public and misled polling place workers that um, people did need a photo ID, um, a driver's license or something like that, when in fact they don't. Um, and that now there's an injunction so that any advertisement of this has to include all the forms of ID that people can use. Right, and so that was you know that was the advertising that Ashcroft had 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 been uh, promoting mm-hmm. and had been responsible for. So I think there's an effort to have lawyers at the polling booths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done this in the past. I think I'm going to do it again this time, where you are looking for these kinds of problems to make sure people understand their rights and are not kept from voting because they don't understand the rules. Mm-hmm. But the, you know the really sad thing about this, I think, looking at it sort of globally, is that. All of these laws, uh, which have been passed through the Midwest and the South uh, to require uh, voter photo ID on the basis of voting fraud, are really just a modern-day version of trying to keep down the vote that Republican candidates don't want to come out and vote against them because it's you know it's the five percent of people who have trouble uh, getting these who don't have the photo IDs are the are people who are most likely to to uh, vote for Democrats and you know the vote the Supreme Court has managed to uh, uh, throw out the voting key parts of the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, and it, it's just so, so sad that here we are in uh, in the 21st century and and these are just new methods of of trying to hold down the the, uh, the vote. Well, I mentioned Georgia a couple of moments ago, and I think some 70,000 people can be purged from the rules there for very simple oversights mm-hmm. and, and some of their paperwork. And all of this is being engineered by the, the candidate for governor, who's the secretary of state, who oversees yes. the whole election yeah. process. Yes, and it stands to benefit. Mm-hmm. In a very close race, you know, those, vo- those votes could might well be the deciding ones. Well, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of people. Uh, and, could, and even you know, if you prevent- don't don't agree with these political reasons, you know that that this is what's really happening. On it's Republicans trying to keep down Democratic voters. It, it's still a the law is it, it's a solution in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have a problem. I mean, it, we have not documented a problem with people voting, you know, who are not yeah. supposed to vote. And so, why do you come in with all these solutions to a problem that doesn't exist? Right. Yeah, there literally have been no no cases of right. uh, voter fraud, I think, in the, in the entire country. And, and if there have been any, one or two, it's a handful. Yeah. 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 yeah, okay. Well, let's move along. Um, this is uh, sort of complicated. Uh, this is the uh, St. Louis juvenile parole suit is the way I have it uh, written here. Looks like juveniles sentenced to life without parole in Missouri for crimes committed when they were younger than 18 years old may have another chance at parole. A federal judge calls the parole board practice unconstitutional, that practice being that they would not be eligible for parole uh, for those who are under the age of 18. The state has 60 days to come up with a plan. What do you make of all of this, Marcia? Well, it's... it's it's interesting that the state has not been able to really comply with the Supreme Court's decision that life uh, uh, without the possibility of parole for juveniles um, was unconstitutional. Um, and it's also interesting in light of the things that have been happening in Washington state, for example, where their state Supreme Court found um, uh, that the same kind of 
practice was violated their state constitution. Um, and it doesn't seem like it would be that hard um, to come up with an opportunity that's a real opportunity for people to um, satisfy parole uh requirements. Um, and it seems like the judge really laid out what those requirements might even look like um, that could be communicated to inmates. So um, I think it would be, given all of those things in the roadmap, um, that the state has an easy way forward. And, and mm-hmm. here the, the situation, you had four um, people seeking parole and and they said, look, you just gave them a boilerplate, plate, like kind of two-page denial. You know, you're not taking this seriously they have a constitutional right and you're ignoring it. Mm-hmm. So this was brought by the MacArthur yeah. uh, group here, um, yeah. the public interest group. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, anything else? Let's. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's sort of a Missouri history to this. I mean, it was a Missouri Supreme Court that first said, you, know, you cannot execu- execute juveniles. Mm-hmm. And then that led to, uh, then the Supreme Court agreed uh, with Justice Kennedy and writing that opinion, and then uh, then they took the next step saying also not life without parole for juveniles. Yeah. You know, so all based on the idea that juveniles' uh, brains have not matu- don't have the level of maturity to, to uh, have the same kind of culpability, and they should be able to show they've rehabilitated. And that's mm-hmm. what this order, uh, this uh, Nanette Lowry's uh, order says, is that the state has to come up with this plan to give them a meaningful opportunity to obtain release based on maturity and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Who comes up with the plan? They said the state has to come up with a plan. Who actually would be involved in something like that? Parole board? Yeah, and, I assume and, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Consulting with the attorney general, I would guess? Yeah, probably. It's not something that would have to go to the legislature necessarily for some sort of I don't think change. So. No. Okay. All righty. Um, Al Watkins is a name that um, sometimes brings a smile to faces uh, uh, people who are in the legal profession. I know uh, a few people in this room perhaps uh, are guilty of that. He, um, is, of course, is the uh, attorney who represented the ex-husband of the woman who was involved in the Greitens invasion of privacy case that we all heard so much about for, for so long. He um, has admitted that he violated a court order which had prohibited attorneys in that case from uh, making public statements. He made many public statements, and uh, now he's going to pay the price. What is that price, Bill? Well, 100 hours of talking to uh, lawyers and others around the state about the importance of complying with a judge's orders. And, uh, and he's got to pay Jerry Carmody's Fees. And Jerry Carmody's Which fees. Which I'm sure are substantial. And Jerry Carmody is? He's he's a lawyer at Carmody McDonald, but he's... Representing he was appoint- the special prosecutor. Yeah, he's the special, special prosecutor. So. And he's a former St. Louis City Circuit mm-hmm. uh, uh, prosec- Assistant Circuit Attorney. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that a judge uh, cracked down on Al Watkins... Um, uh, but uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit scary to me the thought of Al Watkins spending a hundred hours le- um, lecturing on ethics to Missouri's lawyers. I'm afraid of what kind of <laughs> ethics they would take away. I mean, this is the guy who went on television at the height of the Ferguson protests, and he claimed that many African American women's babies had been sold out of Homer Phillips' parking lot. Uh, and he, this is the guy who's who's kind of go tell tell uh, 
Missouri lawyers about uh, about how to be ethical. Uh, I guess he also gets maybe he even gets to have credit on his uh, you know his yearly. He has to do, have a yearly. Oh, his, um, um, his, his uh, CLE continuing CLE, education yeah, for education. all all the hours in which he prepares. Hmm. Uh, and he knows he gets to count towards the hundred hours, the preparation time, as well as the travel time to the to the venue. Um, I'm not too sympathetic towards right. <laughs> You have a thought on that, Marcia, or do you want to defer? No, I'll defer <laughs> on that one. <laughs> okay. Well, he, one thing he gets is a lot of publicity, and I know there are lawyers out there who don't mind publicity of any kind. And he may be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> it may be. Let's take another break. We'll do that now and come back to continue our legal roundtable panel discussion when we return. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue with our legal roundtable panel of Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Marcia McCormick, all attorneys, discussing issues of the day in the world of the law and the legal world. Okay, here's an unusual one. Uh, I, at least it seems so to me. And that is the uh, ruling by the United States Supreme Court on the issue of hair braiding here in the uh, state of Missouri. Uh, unusual for the uh, Supreme Court. It vacated a lower court ruling requiring Missouri hair braiders to undergo extensive and expensive training to obtain a cosmetology license. Ironically, that training does not include hair braiding. So where the heck are we, Marcia? This is, this is a weird one for the Supreme Court, I would think. It is and it isn't. So really, this is, it was, um, it was the Eighth Circuit's decision was vacated because the state said that they had come out with new rules. Right. Um, and so really, the appeal um, or the the decision was moot because the the rules that got upheld um, no longer apply. Um, but states do this kind of um, regulation of professions um, all the time, and hair braiding is one in particular that um, states uh, are often regulating under uh, purportedly for public health reasons, um, creating a lot of uh, limitations on people when there's not a great demonstrable public health need. Um, it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about, you know, dentists, <laughs> uh, doctors, lawyers. Um, but uh, when uh, when people are practicing professions that um, don't really create a great risk to the public health or to consumers, um, it doesn't make as much sense to limit entry into those professions. And of course, this too, really impacted the African-American community in a way that did not impact um, the white community. That, that's kind of what caught my eye. I mean, it has the scent of discrimination somehow. Somebody wants to get at this particular group. Do you sense that, Bill? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I think that's the, the sort of the, maybe the basis of the original law that then the Missouri leg legislature changed. Uh, I mean, one thing about this is that this is the kind of situation where we in the media oftentimes don't um, we, we mislead people about about the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court ruled nothing yeah. on this. Um, they didn't say mm -hmm. anything about whether you, you can make hair, uh, lots of rules for hair braiding or you cannot make rules for hair braiding, or this is discrimination or not discrimination. All they said was, Missouri changed the rules. This case is moot. Yeah. Go away. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, dis no decision. You know, maybe there'll be future challenges to the new Missouri laws requirements on hair braiding, but the Supreme Court said nothing on hair braiding. Well, how does something like this get all the way to the Supreme Court? 
Well, it just it, it get it gets there because well there there there, there was a, there is a sort of libertarian right. um, organization called the Institute for Justice, I think, that uh, supported a uh, a local hair braiders uh, uh, challenge to Missouri's very sort of uh, you know requirements for lots of of training uh, for for this sort of thing and. Uh, you know, the, so then the case, and there's a, you know, that is a fine challenge. It goes to courts. A Circuit Court of Appeals has has an uh, opinion on it. And meanwhile, um, uh, you know, meanwhile, the Missouri legislature says, oh, we're going to change the rules. And so then the whole thing yeah. has to start over again, basically. And they, they, this group has been bringing these lawsuits, I think, yeah. around the country, focusing on it. You know, this is an interesting I think an interesting area of the law because when you, when you step back at it and look at it, you know everyone just thinks of the law as something you need to comply with. That I have to do this, I got to be careful about this. But business people have figured out you can use the law to hurt your competition. And mm-hmm. so when when you know taxi cabs are a great example. You know you I can't just start a taxi business. I have to go through all this licensing. Well, part of that is to protect the public. But an extra benefit is it restricts the number of taxi cabs and allows prices to stay high. And then when we have a new entrant, like Uber or Lyft, mm-hmm. we restrict them. And maybe we restrict only certain taxi cab companies to pick up at the airport and not others. And, and there's all these ways that businesses have figured out to use the law on, on something called Porter's Forces. It's um, uh, a business school concept. But you can use this to kind of hurt the competition to protect yourself to uh, you know get more suppliers in to get more customers in um, and and like I said it's it's something I think most business people or many business people have figured out but most of most people just think of oh the laws out there nobody thinks of it that way but mm-hmm. they do do we have any sense of what the new law is going <laughs> to how, how that reads with I think the there was some like for you, hair they were talking about a 4 hour video and <laughs> much so, less. Yeah, much less. Yeah. Before it was like four years. Or it was like fifteen hundred hours. Fifteen hundred hours. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot. And yeah. and very expensive. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't even include the issue of uh, of hair braiding in, mm-hmm. in the existing law, the former law, whatever. Fifteen hundred hours. I mean, think about the average law student goes to class fifteen hours a week, over three years. How many? I can't do that math. Yeah, I, I can't either. <laughs> no, that's why we're not in business, right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's uh, move on to another one. And this is uh, another complicated issue, and that's why I'm so glad you're here to straighten it out for all of us. <laughs> the Disciplinary Council, which investigates lawyers' misconduct, is keeping alive the case against two former St. Louis prosecutors charged with covering up an incident in which a police officer allegedly beat up a handcuffed suspect. The council rejected proposed reprimands against Ambry Schusler and Katie Deerdorf and is recommending suspension of their law licenses. Neither of these uh, young ladies is, is currently with the circuit attorney's office. Um, okay, Marcia, what now? Well, so uh, this is after a hearing, right? So mm-hmm. the and the um, disciplinary uh, entity uh, wasn't satisfied with that public reprimand, um, which found that actually uh, justice had not been injured um, by their actions. Um, and so uh, so what's next is the um, disciplinary entity gets to try and make its case for the um, 
for the suspension. Um, and, and they so, would do that to the Supreme, Missouri, right, Supreme, Missouri Court. Supreme Court. So. so, so I used to chair one of these disciplinary mm-hmm. panels, and so we would get we would meet get together like once every month or two, and you know just you'd hear all these complaints. And most of the time, the complaints were nothing. And then, mm-hmm. but you know something like this would obviously be very serious. We would make a recommendation, and then. And then it would go to this next level. But the, the office of the, um, the chief disciplinary officer mm-hmm. always had ultimate authority over it and, and most of the time would just defer. But obviously this case, they feel, is an important case, and mm-hmm. so they're taking it to the Supreme Court for more serious. Uh, I mean, and one of the lawyers involved, I mean, faced criminal charges, uh, I think received something like that, a year and a half of probation. That was Warrell, Beth Warrell, Warrell, Warrell I think. Right, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and the police officer involved went to jail. Yeah. So from a, a so very was, prominent police family. Right. I mean, this this is a, a fairly amazing incident. You know, we have yeah. four young uh, young uh, women lawyers in the well, uh, three lawyers, one attorney, intern, uh, one intern right. in yeah. the in the circuit attorney's office. Who you know seem to have covered up this detective Thomas Carroll beating a handcuffed suspect who he suspected of having uh, stolen his daughter's car, and Carroll went to jail, went to prison, mm-hmm. I think for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the thought that these women would just be who who Carroll told about it and who knew about it and and talk to each other about how they would cover it up. And the thought that they would just be reprimanded. And who are officers of the court, who officers have of the court. Is affirmative it, duties. I think incredible. I mean, I, I think this is a good action by the Office of Disciplinary Counsel to say that there should be more consequences for that. Um, the, you know, this has it's a sort of colorful case in that two of the uh, women, I guess, are daughters of former professional athletes. Laurel and Deardorff are familiar names to uh, Mm -hmm. the sports community here. Marsha, what does a suspension of the license actually mean? Obviously, you can't practice law when your license has been suspended. But in practical terms, what does it mean? Um, Well, it means that uh, well, in practical terms, it means depending on your employer, you may lose your job um, right. because since you can't represent clients, you may be very limited in what kind of work you can do. Hmm. Um, future employers are definitely going to be a little bit wary <laughs> uh, if you keep uh, if you don't keep your job. For example, um, it can mean the end of a legal career for a lot of people. Hmm. Well, one of the uh, one of the two, I think it's it's Deerdorf, is. Uh, now a, a public defender in Denver, I, I believe. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if the license were suspended here by the Missouri Supreme Court, could she continue to practice uh, in Denver? It would depend on what the Colorado rules are and whether the uh, Colorado Supreme Court or disciplinary authority would um, uh, they would she would need to report it actually right. to them, um, and they could take action to suspend mm-hmm. her license because it's suspended here. And often states will do things like they have that. reciprocity agreements, that sort of thing. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. It's basically the fact that you've been found to have done this terrible thing uh, someplace else means that you also are violating the rules um, regarding your license here in the state as well. But but does not necessarily mean it. But, right. But I I agree with what you're saying. Um, but, yeah, that could open up. And obviously you need a law license to be a, a public defender. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's interesting other... also for lawyers who are in private practice, if, you know, if I'm suspended for a year, well, somebody else has got to take over my clients yeah. for that yeah. time, and I become, I can't, and, and the, these guys always get in trouble because they want to, I'm suspended. Maybe I'm suspended because I haven't paid my taxes or something. And then they start 
practicing law, and they'll then you get in real trouble for yeah. practicing law when you're suspended. That's not a good thing. The, the other uh, uh, Schussler, I think the name is, uh, is uh, practicing with a firm in Clayton. I think mm-hmm. so. She mm-hmm. is still uh, still here. Okay. Well, let's uh, we'll go back to the Kavanaugh case here because we have a, a listener who has a question, and uh, his name is Robert. He says, um, and he put this on our St. Louis on the Air group page, by the way, which is available on Facebook. He writes, to what extent do your guests think bitter confirmation hearings like Kavanaugh's affect the legitimacy of the court? And what steps can the court take to preserve its legitimacy, particularly since Senate rules changes make it easier for more polarized nominees to be confirmed? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Well, I think bitter... Uh, confirmation fights like this definitely affect the legitimacy of the court because it makes it look as though the court is political. You know, a lot of people, including law professors, will say, well, you know, that's just the truth anyway. You know, these justices usually vote their political uh, predilections anyway. But, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, the reality or the myth uh, of of the Supreme Court being above politics and trying to find uh, constitutional principles that apply regardless of the political uh, leanings of the people on each side of the case. That's really an important principle. And um, uh, so I think it does, for, for, for the confirmation hearing to be incredibly political then makes the, the body, the Supreme Court itself, look political. And when then a lot of the 5-4 decisions are Republican appointees voting on one side and Democratic appointees voting on another, that just sort of reaffirms that that view. And it's become become more that way because uh, it's a lot easier these days to, uh, or the presidents are very, very careful to appoint uh, justices who are very predictable, who have been Federal judges long enough that they know exactly how they're going to vote. You know, the Federalist Society on on the Republican side has been really good at, uh, really effective at pointing out what just judges and justices can be counted on to um, to be ideologically cons- uh, conservative and originalists and. Um, and so that's why we end up having, I think, a Supreme Court that is very much more divided like that. Marsha, to, to that, I would say, so what if the legitimacy is tainted? It's the Supreme Court. Where do you take it? I mean, who do you appeal to? Yeah, right. Where do you I, know? I actually joke a little bit. I teach federal courts, which is all about the Supreme Court um, and the judicial branch. And I joke that, you know, it's sort of like asking whether God can make a rock so big he can't lift it um, half the time in all of the cases that we read, because really there there aren't limits on the court. Um, but But... Um, legitimacy is still important because the court really only has its sort of political capital um, in order to get people to comply with its rulings. Um, The federal judiciary is pretty well acculturated to comply, I think. I'm not sure the political branches necessarily are. Um, And so... uh, so there's so there's little I think that the court can do to maintain its legitimacy other than try to be as incremental as possible, not have a lot of five four decisions, not overrule a lot of cases for a while, um, as a way to sort of say this is you know we're not engaged in the business of politics. And I, I think this legitimacy is important because it's with the other branches, the executive and the legislative. The executive branch has got the army; they've got a lot of power. Legislative branch got the money, a lot of power. 
you know, the court, all they got is some cool-looking robes. That's it. You know, they don't, well, they can't make things happen. The power well, to write a strongly worded letter. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Which everyone's scared to die. Hypothetically, though, if the uh, if the Supreme Court ruled to overturn, overturn Roe v. Wade, it would still be overturned. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it, would, but it might hurt the legitimacy of the court to do so when uh, it is a precedent that has, you know, existed for as long as it has, that it's been found to be workable, that it was reaffirmed by, uh, you know, a court 25 years after it was decided. Uh, so, so for now, suddenly for the Supreme Court to say, oh, but it's, it's not right any longer, I think it would hurt the legitimacy of the court. And think of some of the... uh, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, federalism is the problem there, that there are a lot of states teed up to enact very, even more restrictive laws. And if the states start not paying attention to what the Supreme Court says they have to do, we are in real trouble, I think. Right. Think about like during the civil rights where certain, you know, you have the Supreme Court saying, you you have to desegregate and the states saying, make me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was Eisenhower going in with the National Guard that made them. Not mm-hmm. The court didn't walk down there and do it. I mean, old people like us remember the days when you would drive around uh, on a car trip and you'd see impeach Earl Warren signs, all mm-hmm. billboards all through the South because they were part of massive resistance to Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah. I, I thought it was sort of notable. We were talking earlier about Chief Justice Roberts talking about the legitimacy of the court yeah. and the importance of independence and citing Brown versus the Board of Education as being yeah. a perfect example of how important it was mm. for the Supreme Court to be independent of what the politics of the day would support. And, and the thing is, too, because I, I worry when people hear this, that they, they start thinking, well, you know, the Supreme Court's in on it, and these guys are Democrats and Republicans, big D, you know, in... And I think it has more to do with maybe just some views of what the government should be like. We should have a small federal government or a large federal government. And the idea that, you know, the Constitution is a pretty brief document. It doesn't answer every question. And, you know, I've said this before on your show, but it's like it's like my wedding vows, you know, my marriage <laughs> vows. Uh, they're pretty vague. They don't t- say how many times I get to play poker every week, you know? Oh, we boy. have to work that out. You, you keep pointing that out you, to your yeah. wife? You? <laughs> You're on dangerous turf with that, uh, Mark. We've She's got, a strict constructionist. <laughs> if it doesn't say anything about it, it's not in there. You we've, know? Got, we've got to end the conversation here. I want to thank you all. Marsha McCormick, thank you for being with us once again. It's been too long since the last time. Bill Freivogel, thank you. Mark Smith, thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.